Derek, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me all the way across the world. Oh my gosh, last time we were together was in New Zealand, and I guess that was, what, uh, three, three and a half years ago, something like that. Yeah, and uh, we both left, and now I'm back, so I'm here in Wellington, New Zealand. But yeah, last time I saw you was in Auckland at a horse racing course. With your Honestly, I, I, I've done several hundred tour stops, and that might have been the strangest venue. <laughs> <laughs> Even the locals thought so. Yeah, that was awesome. It was very unique. Uh, there were escalators, and uh, yeah, I was just waiting for a horse to bust through a door at any moment. Yeah. Anyway, I figured we could start by talking about beliefs. I mean, one of the things that I admire you for is when I look at you compared to your average person. You seem to be less influenced by mimetic or, or societal beliefs, and you sort of have your own personal beliefs. How do you think you developed this skill, or, or why do you think that is? I think it's because I was, I think it's two things. For one, I was just a long-haired musician that wanted to be uh, a rock star. And so I was surrounded by people that were trying to uh, get into a good college, and all of that was moot to me. They were trying to uh, get a good job somewhere, and that was moot to me. They were looking into like how to make lots of money and get insurance and healthcare, and all of that was moot to me. So for most of it, I just felt like I, the things that most of the world wanted just didn't seem to apply to me anyway. Anyway, I was just pursuing a different thing. You know, I was I was the ringleader MC of a circus for 10 years from the age of 18 to 28. I was in a circus. And so I guess that could be a bit of a um alienating thing where I just uh yeah, most people couldn't relate to the life of a circus performer full-time, you know. Um I quit my last job in 1992. Yeah, I've been a full-time just musician and whatever guy since 1992. So I think that's most of it. But even going back further, um, if you lay me on the shrink couch, um, when I was five years old, we moved from uh, Chicago to, or sorry, we moved from California to England. And uh, I was the American kid at an English school and everybody uh, was really weird to me and seemed to have different values from me and think that different things were important. So I was just like, yeah, I'm not one of you people. And then we moved to Chicago and everybody called me the English kid because I had picked up the accent. <laughs> and so once again, I was just like, I'm not like you people. I, you know, I just felt that like ever since I was like five years old, it just felt like whatever situation I'm in, it just feels like the rules don't apply to me. I'm just doing something else. So, um, and yeah. And I find your I find your reaction to that fascinating because a lot of people uh, feel that way. I'm not like you people, but I might as well assimilate then. And and yours was sort of the opposite of that, where it's uh, it's almost pushing those those societal or mimetic beliefs away, and and making sure that what you're doing is aligned with your own. We could call it values. We can call it beliefs, but with what you want to do. Yeah, and maybe it's flaunting it. For attention? No, I don't want attention. Maybe I did long ago. No, I don't know. What was that thing? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it did just feel more like you guys are doing a different thing here. You're, you're, you're pursuing something that I'm not pursuing. So therefore, all of these norms and rules, which seem to be about fitting in and being liked 
and all that stuff. I wasn't pursuing those in the first place. So um, yeah, I never wanted to fit in. I wanted to stand out. I never wanted to be normal. I wanted to be different. And yeah. I think that you have mastered the art of letting go in many ways. For folks that are familiar with your story, it's uh, whether it's stuff or, or places or attachments, you're really good at moving on. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, how do you determine when it's time to let go of a, of a person, place, or thing so Ooh. that you can move on? Ooh, wow. That's a great question. <laughs> I think it's personal development, right? It's, it's growth when you feel that you've learned most of what there is to learn here, then it's time to move on. I love the metaphor that when you're playing a game, like a board game or something like that, video game, board game, whatever it may be, when you win the game, it's time to stop playing. And I think of that a lot too. It's like if, if you mm. set out to do something and you've done it, like say, say you set out to make money and you did it. You made money. Well, great. Now you can stop playing that game. It's time to play yeah. a different game. But I think what a lot of people do is they they get into a game to go make money, for example, and then they achieve it, and then they keep playing that game more and more and more to try to just make some more. Uh, whereas I find it much more interesting in the name of growth to go learn a different game. Let's stop playing the money game. Let's play a different game. And sometimes that game just amplifies it instead of the Mercedes Benz, it's the Maserati or, or whatever the, <laughs> right. the, the game right. is. Uh, you obviously strike me as a minimalist. You certainly are in many respects. Uh, let me ask you this. How, how has your relationship to material possessions changed over the years? Um. So I'm curious if you've found this with all the people you've talked to on this subject for the last few years, if, if there's a common thread. I think most of us had to go through it to get to the other side, right? Like when yes. I was a self-promoting musician, I lived in a house full of stuff. I had a recording studio. And this is also back in the days when uh, to promote your stuff was more of a physical thing. I had a thousand CDs in boxes that I, and a thousand padded mailers. And I used to have eight by 10 glossy photos, which I would include in my press kit with CDs and put into a padded mailer. So my house was filled with promotional stuff and it was filled with recording studio stuff. And I had two cats and I, you know, I just take, I had a house full of stuff, but then I moved house like three times in four years. And each time I'd pack all that stuff into a U-Haul, mm -hmm. drive it somewhere and then unpack all that stuff. And it wasn't until uh, my business CD Baby was totally taking off, was consuming every waking hour that I moved into a place uh, that was actually my grandma's furnished apartment. My grandma had a little like guest apartment next to her house that she let me stay in temporarily and it was just already furnished. So this time, instead of unpacking all my stuff, I just put it all into storage temporarily while I stayed at grandma's furnished apartment. And then mm. five years went by and I was still at the furnished temporary apartment and all my stuff was still in storage after five years. And so I was like, you know, I guess if I haven't needed it in five years, I'm going to need it never. So right. 
I had 50 employees at the time and I just told my employees like, all right, here's the, the key to my storage space. Everybody just go grab whatever you want. Um, one thing each, please. And yeah, somebody grabbed my bass. Somebody else took my piano. Somebody else took my mixing deck. Somebody else took my speakers. And and pretty soon I had nothing left but my old paper diaries, like my notebook diaries I'd been carrying around since I was 13 or something. And I looked at all these notebooks. I was like, eh, really? Am I going to like look at these things when I'm 50? Nah, chuck it. So I just threw them in the bin and that was it. I was left with nothing but a suitcase of clothes. And um yeah, but you know what I was thinking? I was thinking about That's you right. a, a couple of days ago because I realized that it's my minimalism thing is not just physical. Um, no. Dude, I legally removed my middle name because I wasn't using it. And <laughs> that is, That's a first for me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Expand on this. I, I hate having things I'm not using. And I just realized like I've... I never use my middle name. In fact, it wasn't even on my passport because just years ago when they asked my name, I just said Derek Sivers and left out my middle name, which I had never used since birth. And um, then when I moved to Singapore and I became a legal resident, they needed to see my birth certificate. So suddenly like my Singapore bank account was using my middle name. And when I was trying to transfer money from my regular bank account without my middle name into my bank account with my middle name. There were delays because they said the names didn't match. And it's like, you know, I don't use this middle name. I'm getting rid of it. So yeah, it was like 30 bucks and had to file a form to legally remove my middle name. But there are a whole bunch of examples of this. Like if there's a, there was a toaster in my house that I wasn't using and I hadn't used it in a couple months. So I gave it to a friend. It's like just anything I'm not using, I just don't want to have it. Uh, even if it's non-physical. Um, right. So, but at the same yeah. time, it doesn't seem to me that you deprive yourself either. And I think that's a, an important distinction for people to understand is that you're not necessarily opposed to things that are useful to you, but if something is not useful, it seems as though it, it gets in the way and you want it out of your life. You want to let go. Yeah. But even things that could be useful. Oh yeah. I, it has to pass a really high bar. I really don't like letting anything into my life because maybe I take things more seriously than I used to now. So it, it feels like anything I'm letting into my life, like, it's like a, like agreeing to adopt a puppy. Yeah, I treat almost everything mm. like a puppy. <laughs> there we go. Good rule of thumb. Treat everything like a puppy. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I, I like this. Uh, Ryan and I call it the the just in case rule. You know, there's so many things that we hold on to just in case we might need it in some non-existent hypothetical future, and of course, we never end up using those things. And so, giving ourselves permission to let go is really freeing up space for the things or the puppies that may actually add value to our lives. <laughs> uh, speaking of letting go, um, I, I think we have to let go before we can move on. And, and you've moved on a lot. You've lived all over the globe. Uh, you were just in Oxford recently. Now you're mm -hmm. back in New Zealand. I'd love to hear about why that moved back. But then I'd also like to hear about your decision-making process. How do you decide when it's time to move to a new place? Ooh, um, it's a, that's a tricky, nuanced answer that I 
can't give fully because I have a kid with uh, a mother that I we have to compromise, even though we want very different things out of life. We have a kid together that we're very 50-50 with. So, um, so decisions on where to live have to be made together. Like if it were yeah. just up to me alone, I might be in Myanmar right now and mm. moving every three months because uh, that would be fun. Uh, but she doesn't want that. So therefore we can't do that. We have to find the compromise, you know? So um, that's my real answer with moving. But I think kind of like your first question about letting go, I think that about location too, that a place has something to teach you and a place offers you uh, a growth opportunity and when you feel that you've learned most of what that place has to offer, and I, I draw the line at most of, because of course there's always every day more that you could learn from the place. But when you feel like you've gotten most of what this place has to offer, then I feel that it's actually the growth choice to move on. Um, I think a lot of my inf a lot of my thoughts around this is influenced by Abraham Maslow, the. Uh, psychologist from a hundred something years ago. I think he was a contemporary of Freud's, but while Freud was studying sick people, Abraham Maslow went out to study the healthiest people in the world and find out mm -hmm. what makes them tick. And he developed his theory of self-actualization with this pyramid showing your basic needs like food and shelter um, at the bottom of the pyramid, your medium needs like feeling heard and appreciated and doing good work that you're proud of. And at the very tippy top of the pyramid uh, was the thing he called self-actualization, which was kind of this feeling that you're, um, you're doing your unique contribution to the world. Uh, and his advice after all of these studies to people is he had this great uh, motto that I've uh, been driven by ever since where he said every day, or he said a hundred times a day, you're presented with the choice between safety and growth. He might have mm. said safety and risk. Uh, and then he said, make the growth choice a hundred times a day. Mm. And so I read that as a teenager and really took it to heart. And I think that's what I've been doing ever since is always looking at the day-to-day -day little choices between safety and growth and choosing the growth choice. Do you find that returning to a place opens up uh, a different worldview or, or do you see it through a different lens? You've, re you've returned now to, to New Zealand. I assume there's other places you've returned to in the past, Singapore perhaps. But um, uh, do, do you find you come back after being away uh, for a while with a, a new point of view? Hmm. Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess like watching a movie a second time, mm, years yeah. later, you do see it through new eyes, but come on, let's admit it. For the most part, you've seen that movie. Like, yes, you might sure. get a, a little more out of it, but you, it would be a better growth choice to just watch a new movie, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess I feel that about places too. I'd rather just go for a new place that I'd never been to instead of back to the same place again. But, you know, we all... Yeah, I love we all, Sorry uh, to interrupt. We, so we, it's just not only as people do we have different values. You know, some people are just way more into family, for example, or we're way more into 
uh, hedonism that they may just mm. kind of follow the sun, follow the weather, go where their party is. Uh, so we sure. all have different values. But I think what 2020 showed a lot of us is that our values can change based on the situation. You know, so in 2019, your top value might have been travel. You would have said travel is the most important thing to me. And then suddenly 2020 happens and you go, huh, oh, um, maybe not dying is my most important value now. <laughs> I think I've just changed my values based on the situation. You know, whether we having a kid can change your values. Uh, sure. Getting fired from a job can change your values. Uh, winning the lottery changes your values. You know, we have to admit that our values, uh, we have some values that are there just by nature, some that are there because we just grew up being told that things are, these things are important. And sometimes our values are very situational. And as soon as our yeah. situation changes, our values change. Yeah, I like to think that we have uh, different types of values, like foundational values are, are, are things that are probably not going to change for us. And by the way, I think they're pretty similar for most of us, whether it's health or relationships and we, we, we can you know define those differently and I think they're they're different for each person but then you have these sort of surface values yeah you know, like travel for example that might be a value for you but for me it, it, it may be less of a value and then I think many of us have the imaginary values the sort of societal values the things that have been thrust upon us and we think they're important but they may actually be getting in the way of us living the life that that we want to live. I appreciate your honesty around the the uh, question around moving back to a place. Uh, <laughs> well, I feel weird sometimes when people say like, "Hey, well, and why'd you move to New Zealand?" I'm like, "It's complicated," you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah and, and by the way, that's involved. the right, right, and and sometimes that's the only honest answer is it's complicated, right? There, yeah. I I don't have the the sexy answer for you. Um, how uh, to pivot a bit? What what? You're on social media. You're on Twitter. Wait, actually, before we pivot yeah. to this stuff, uh, I just recently, about a month ago, met somebody uh, that we would just kind of just random, like stranger uh, kind of thing. And we were comparing notes and suddenly we're like shocked at how many things we have in common, like really weird, esoteric things. Like, you know, even when you said in this interview, you say, you know, you seem to move on more than most people or whatever. So I met somebody else that also had these really weird approach to life things in common, also very nomadic, very like ever changing. And it wasn't till a few days of conversation that I found out that he also um, is not into his family, like his parents. Like I also feel like I've always felt very disconnected from my parents. Like even as a little kid, I was just never into family bonds. Wow. And when we found out that he was the same way, we're like, whoa, I wonder if this is a common thread. Like, if you don't feel very connected with your family, then dot, 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 all these other traits maybe fall into place. Like being nomadic, constantly looking for change instead of security. Like maybe there's some kind of, um, because we didn't have warm and fuzzy, positive feelings around security in the family home front, maybe that leads to other things. So it's interesting, like, you know, I'm 51 now. So even at the age of 51, still finding out maybe why I am this way. You know, I don't question it that much. So every now and then it's weird to get a new insight into why we are the way we are. Yeah. And it's interesting going back, sort of tracing the dominoes back to the, the first one that fell. And, uh, you know, it, it's almost, it seems to me difficult to be able to even talk about something like that. Uh, 
uh, for a lot of people because there is a societal expectation. It, it, it almost seems callous, but I, I think it's I think it's the opposite. Personally, I, I think to be able to have honest honest conversations about things like that is actually a compassionate way to to talk about you know, the people who raised us or the people uh, that, that that were around you know twenty four mm. hours a day for a long period of time. Yeah, I do want to pivot over to, to yes. social media because okay. I uh, this. Uh, I don't know. There's been a whole lot of talk. There's a new documentary out there now with uh, it's called the social dilemma. And a lot of people are, are finally waking up to the idea that, Hey, maybe these things aren't as nebulous as, as we initially thought. I mean, they are tools, but there are also thousands of well-paid engineers who are working very hard to aggregate your eyeballs onto these tools. And uh, I want to, I just wanted to figure out how your views about social media have changed over the last decade or so um they haven't because i've never been into it i've never used it i've never even found it at all appealing uh, mm. but i just recently had a little insight into why uh some others might you know you and i are both a little bit famous already and so we already have a percentage of our life that is public. Um, not like, right. you know, paparazzi at the door public, but, you know, just the things like this interview that we're putting out into the world that a bunch of strangers are going to hear. And most people don't have that at all. Um, yeah. And so their outlet to share things in the public is just through social media, through posting things on their platform of choice and somebody asked me recently uh if having a kid makes you give up your public aspirations give up your public uh life and i was like no i said i i, I need a balance um i think a life that was a hundred percent private doing nothing in the public or for the public would be really sad for me but on the other hand, a life that was 100% public with no private life, that would also be really mm. sad to me. Yeah. So I think I always need the blend. Although I always need you, strike my... me, you strike me as a more, more private person, um, although you, you certainly have this, this public-facing piece of you, whether it's your, your podcast or, or your books or, or your website you know, with the articles that you write. There is a public-facing Derek Sivers, Derek, no middle name Sivers, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet you, I, there is not a piece of you, and I admire this about you that it doesn't seem to me that you attention is not the point of doing what you do. No, but if that's what I mean about the zero percent, right? Like, if I had none, then maybe I would be doing things to seek attention. Mm. You know, like I've already got enough attention for my balance. So I'm not seeking anymore. I don't really post anything on social media. Why would I? What, what, what would be the point? More attention? I don't want more attention. Ah, right. but it's a because I already have some. So then I realize, like, okay, when I see just random, you know, girl from Ohio or um, Kazakhstan or. Peru or whatever is posting a, a picture of herself on Instagram today. I think, why would she do that? Then I go, 
Ah, because this is, she's reaching for her own balance that makes her happy of doing some things publicly. And yes, she is seeking more attention than she has right now because she doesn't have enough. And at some point she might reach the balance where that's enough attention for her. And then of course, you right. know, we see famous narcissists that no amount is enough for them. They just want it all. And there's no amount that could ever be enough. Um, but we all just find our own balance. So yeah, I, I suddenly had more compassion for the people that are posting selfies online that I never really understood that before I thought about this uh, public private balance. And and you found your enough. And I think that's the key here is determining what that enough is, being honest with yourself about that. In fact, I think most of us never ask what is enough, right? We're, we're always either accumulating more, 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 or even, even when we're letting go, it's like, well, how much is enough letting go? Because is, do I need to become an ascetic? Um, mm, do, right. do I need to become a Spartan in some way? Or um, is there enough letting go? Or is there enough accumulation? And, and what does that mean? I, I think quite often we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. It's just it's, there's some hypothetical happiness that's just around the bin that, of course, we, we don't arrive at if we don't determine what is enough. Although it's not bad to seek it. I mean, if you use the physical metaphor of you're walking into a dark room, you need to kind of stick your hands out and feel where the end is, <laughs> where the boundaries. You need to hit the boundaries before you know uh, where you are. So like we said earlier about uh, having too much stuff, most of us will have to go through the process, no matter how much they may listen to to you and what you've put out into the world, they'll have to hit their limit themselves of having too much stuff and feeling the pain from that. Right. Before they finally said, okay, now I know where my enough is. And, you know, lucky me that I won the lottery in a way of selling my company at the right time where I was able to feel um, that enough with money too and just feel like, okay, no, this is enough for me. Like I'm not playing that game anymore. I'm not pursuing money anymore because uh, now I know I've reached the amount that that was enough. But if I hadn't hit that, I'd still be pursuing it. Right. Yeah, I uh, with the minimalists, we we don't do. We're not allergic to money, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, we we uh, try not to let it be the primary driver. It's allowed to be in the vehicle, but not behind the wheel, so to, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and we all, we often begin our, our podcast with uh, with this little phrase: uh, "This episode of the Minimalist is brought to you by nobody because advertisements suck." And, um, I, I, I've heard you speak on this in the past and my guess is that probably resonates with, to, with you oh, yeah. to, to some extent because a I lot. don't want to, I, I hate listening. I start, hate starting a podcast and hearing eight minutes of ads or hearing it interrupted by ads. Um, and, and I think ads uh, are, are dangerous to a certain extent, but I also think there may be times where they're potentially beneficial. Can you speak about both sides of that or either side of that? Ah, yeah. Um, okay. So Tim Ferriss is a friend of mine. I've known him since um, 2007 or so, and he's gotten a lot more famous since then. And um, so it's been funny to like, as his podcast especially took off, and I think that's been his, despite the success of his books, I think his podcast has the biggest audience of anything he's ever done. So yeah, he's got like eight minutes of ads up front. And 
you know, I was giving him hell for this. Like, dude, come on. It's, you know, I know you. I know you don't need the money. Why are you doing this? What's with the eight minutes of ads? And he just said, you know, I, I wish, um, I wish this weren't true. But he said, those ads bring in so much money. And he said, I've given them to, I give the money to this Cambodian school project that's like created so many schools and put so many kids through school. So when I, make this decision of like, should I get rid of all the ads? I think, yeah, I could get rid of the ads. And then 4,000 kids in Cambodia won't be going to school anymore. So he said, mm. you know, it's not ideal, but it's net positive. Those aren't his exact words, but that's that was kind of like the the gist of the decision um, is, yeah. Um, I recently put out my first book in nine years, my first new book in nine years, and I sold it only through my own website. And I thought I was going to sell maybe $30,000, maybe $40,000 for the books. And in the first month, it sold over a quarter million dollars, like in the first three weeks. And mm. I'll admit, I was elated. I was walking on air. I was like, whoa, a quarter million bucks in a few weeks from like for my book. And I think it just felt really sweet because that was the first time I had charged money for anything in a long time. And right. like so many people opened up their wallets and bought that book directly from me. It was like, it was super touching. It was really, mm. really like soul nourishing, sweet. It felt a hundred percent amazing. I was so happy. And then a few weeks went by and I thought, okay, well, uh, what am I going to do with the money? <laughs> I don't, I guess I'll put it in a Vanguard account or something, put it in index funds. Yeah, I guess that's what I should do. I guess I should stick that money into index funds because, you know, there's nothing I want to buy. So that's the proper thing to do with extra money. And I thought, God, that's just, there's something kind of sad about it. Like I was really excited to earn this money, but I was not excited to keep it. And it was actually a conversation with a friend, a screenwriter, a Lithuanian screenwriter friend of mine who lives in <laughs> Germany that I said, hey, like, what do you do to celebrate? Like, I never celebrate. Like, that's just a thing mm. I've never done. And sh she's the one that said, um, she goes, well, someday when I sell my first uh, TV screenplay, she said, there's a forest in Lithuania that I want to buy to help protect that forest from development. I was like, ooh. And she was, yeah, mm. that that to me would be celebrating my first wow. TV screenplay. I was like, oh, charity as celebration. That's brilliant. I'm like, whoa. And then, of course, it just, like, I couldn't unthink that idea. And within an hour, I was like, oh, I know what I need to do with that quarter million dollars. And so I went to givewell.org, which uh, I had been aware of for years. They're just these data nerds that were interested in what is the most rationally effective form of charitable giving, meaning yeah. the how much money will save the most lives, um, best bang per buck of per lives saved. And then they crunch the data and they find out of all the charities in the world, which ones are saving the most lives per, per dollar. And of those, which ones would save even more lives if they had more money, like they are only money constrained. Therefore, if you have some money to give, all, all things being equal, this is the most rational choices to give to these charities. And they basically list their top three. And so mm -hmm. I picked the top one, which was the Against Malaria Foundation. 
And right. I entered an amount into the calculator, which said that if I donate uh, $250,000 to the Gans Malaria Foundation, that it saves, I think it was like 139 lives. My I was God. like, well, there wow. we go. <laughs> All yeah. right. No contest. So I immediately donated it to the Gans Malaria Foundation, saved 139 lives. I guess 139 people won't die because I charged 15 bucks for my book. And yeah. that felt really good because I was almost about to give it away. So coming back full circle to having advertisements, I hate ads. I do everything on my computer to block ads at every step. So I never see ads online and uh, I'm fully against ads. But then, oh no, I'll admit when Tim Ferriss explained his point of view on it, I thought, all right, I get it. That's an interesting nuance. Yeah, for sure. By the way, I should probably mention the the book you're talking about is Your Music and People. Um, also, Hell Yeah or No. Those yeah, are your, your two books. new books. Yeah. Okay, both books. Um, by the way, I, your books are probably the only books I buy by the case and just hand them out to people. <laughs> Thank you. That's what, that's a big part of why I went self-published. You know, I had a, my last book was on Penguin Portfolio and the my main contact there is a real sweetheart who's a fan has always told me like, hey, whatever you do next, we want it. It's a instant yes to your next book in advance. And I just decided to go self-published because I like to be able to uh, give someone like you a, a crate of books wholesale instead of you needing to go buy a hundred from Amazon and give Jeff Bezos all that money. Um, I'd rather just sell it wholesale. So um, yeah, I even got to play with pricing. Like I decided to make the paper book just $4, which is about, it's like, it costs about like $3 something to print each book. So I just sell the paper books for four bucks because I don't need to profit off of the paper, you know? Wow. Um, so it's kind of fun to like when you're self-publishing, you get to make your own rules for pricing and things like that too. That's right. Well, that's rather considerate of you, which is uh, just really a segue for my last question for you here. You, you've got this um, point of view, this idea of something that is meta inconsiderate. Now, so maybe you could expand on that, but by well, you can maybe talk about what it is, but then also, can you give three examples of something that is perceived by our society to be, quote, considerate, but it may actually be meta inconsiderate? Sure, yeah. Um, so the big idea is that there are things that we we think of as being considerate, and maybe on a base level it is, but in the bigger picture it's maybe doing more harm than good. So um, say giving, <laughs> Let's first we'll start with the, the uh, theme that comes up here a lot, which is stuff and gifts. So giving someone a gift saying, oh, well, it's their birthday. Let me go down to the store and buy my friend a thing because it's their birthday. Um, yeah, on one level, on a shallow level, that's considerate. But I would think that's kind of, meta inconsiderate because now you're giving your friend a, a thing that they have to take care of or dispose of and then feel the need to reciprocate and do that in the future because that you did it for them and it just kind of sets a bad precedent so that's to me like a shallow considerate but meta inconsiderate um mm. in interpersonal relations i think of it often in terms of uh romantic things when you meet somebody that you're head over heels for and you drown them in compliments, you may think you're being considerate, 
by telling somebody all these sweet things. But in a way, you're being kind of meta-inconsiderate because um, people like the, the joy of the chase. They want to aspire to be with somebody. They want to feel that they're uh that they need to win your heart not that uh the second they said hello they already had your heart that's a little sad <laughs> so you've denied them the joy of of chasing you if you uh are just all over somebody that you you like um so that's kind of where i first started noticing this idea it's a friend of mine mm. uh, in singapore uh was just head over heels for another friend of mine and it was just like gushing all over her and just beating her over the head with his love. <laughs> I was like, dude, I know you think you're being considerate, but you're 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 yeah. being rude. You're being uh -huh. over the top meta inconsiderate. Um so uh it would be more meta considerate to let her come to her own conclusion and um not put her up on a pedestal. Um as far as a third, um I might even say with social media stuff um like the amount that you put out into the world um people may say they want more 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 from you but actually they like wanting more yeah wanting is a nice feeling um yeah so maybe it's better to just uh sometimes let them want a little more and then give them more i, I think of a um <laughs> an ex of mine like 20 years ago my uh, my girlfriend at the time uh she she would do this little thing about like what are you getting for my birthday tell me tell me tell me i said no i'm not telling you she goes oh please 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 tell me what you're getting me for my birthday i said no 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 i'm not telling you and she's oh please 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 please, please tell me i said okay you really want to know yeah i really want to know i said all right a necklace and a trip to mexico and she went huh you weren't supposed to tell me <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I know, don't worry. I didn't actually get you a necklace on a trip to Mexico. I just knew that you didn't actually want to know. So she's like, okay, touche. Oh, uh, so it's like, yeah, she liked yearning to know. She didn't actually want to know. So um, right. maybe with the amount of stuff that we put out into social media and share with the world, it's better to have people uh, want more from us. I like to think, oh, you know, yeah. writing wise, you know, when I, whatever I put out, in the world writing wise is usually very succinct and i have this my rule of thumb is uh if they wish i would have said a little bit more then i've said just enough mm. man i think that's a great place to end it actually <laughs> derek, <laughs> derek sivers thank you so much brother i really thank appreciate you, Joshua. you i love talking with you anytime so thanks for having me on